Saxophonist John Ellis is gifted, versatile, and not only a saxophonist, but a composer. His music is incredibly creative, and he embodies the celebratory, welcoming spirit of New Orleans, combined with the edgy, frenetic streets of New York City. Both as a leader of his own projects and as a sideman for a variety of artists, including Sting and Charlie Hunter, Jason and Ellis Marcellus, he consistently expresses a keen intellect and an easy virtuosity. John joins the playful musician to discuss how he first got into playing the saxophone, his early influences. We geek out a bit about the saxophone techniques, and I'll spare most of you that by putting that at the end of the episode. So if you're a saxophone geek, hang out at the end to hear the really geeky stuff. He also talks about the multiple recordings he released last year during the pandemic. Talks about playing with Charlie Hunter and uh, how a former mentor and teacher of his kind of snuck him onto a Sting record. We chat about his time with Ellis Marcellus and what current projects he has in the works. Please enjoy this conversation with John Ellis. Welcome to The Playful Musician. I'm your host, Steve Davidson. Each week, I sit down with musicians from all different paths, from composers to conductors, percussionists to piccolo players, to tease out their strategies, practice habits, tips, tools, tricks, routines, and how they keep all of it playful. The Playful Musician is an intimate look into the lives of each musician, how they got to where they are, what motivates and inspires them, and what playing music means to them. If you'd like to learn more about the guests or just more about being playful, head on over to the website, theplayfulmusician.com. There you can find show notes, links to all references mentioned in the show, and all kinds of resources related to music. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe to The Playful Musician on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're at it, why not leave a review as well? Thanks again, and without further ado... Here is this week's episode. John Ellis, welcome to The Playful Musician. Thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Steve. Yeah. You know, I, was, um, I noticed that you went to North Carolina, and I'm just curious if you know a friend of mine uh amy griffiths was she there when you were there yeah you mean the north carolina school of the arts right yeah Yeah. north carolina school of the arts right amy amy was there and amy was awesome (laughs) all the way back then she was i love amy yeah um but yeah no we studied uh with james holick at the same time we were in the same studio yeah that's that's so cool we were uh we were at arizona state together studying there uh, nice class, classical saxophone. So when I read that, I was like, "Oh, I, you have to know Amy." And I don't um, know Amy. Wait, so who are you studying with? Arizona State. Um, Joe Whiteco. Okay, 
Nice. Did you ever run into him? No, I thought maybe I would know who that was, but I, I don't. Yeah, he was a Fred Hemke student. Okay. And uh, blistering, like a really blistering technique, and mm. uh, really great teacher. Learned, so learned you studied classical from. mostly, or you studied other stuff? Yeah, I st well, I went to UVO, University of Oregon, for my undergrad, and I did both classical and jazz. Okay. I didn't. Get, I got my degrees in classical, but I okay. was always in the big band. And um, UVO had a great jazz department with Steve Owen. Okay. And then uh, when I was at Arizona State, uh, do you know who Sam Palafian was, tuba player? No. Yeah, he was like amazing tubist. He led the. Uh, the Empire Brass Quintet, and um, he ran. He took over the big band, and it was it was amazing. Amy and I were in that group, and it was it was a ton of fun. So I've always done done both, and you have you have two, right? You've done classical. I mean, obviously, because you studied with James Hollick, you've you've mm. done both, right? Uh, I mean, professionally, that's a that's an interesting <laughs> question. Professionally, not really. I mean, uh, mm. you know, most of my professional life has been uh, i mean in the jazz some yeah. something related to jazz but i mean uh but obviously right i studied i mean i would say he was probably the most influential teacher i ever had so mm -hmm. um and that's partly because he was someone who didn't only focus on technical things he was kind of a real like artistic mentor mm -hmm. um were you playing tenor with him were you studying i was tenor? I was, yeah. That was kind of fortunate, and I wanted to play tenor, and it just turned out that he, you know, was a was a tenor player himself. So yeah. I kind of skipped all the the. I mean, I didn't really have a traditional classical saxophone education because he's, you know, quite not traditional even within the saxophone yeah. world. Yeah, yeah. Kind of in every way, I think, but you know, not only because he plays tenor, but but even outside of that. Mm. So yeah, so I didn't I didn't go through the typical classical saxophone thing. I just was kind of mentored by him and you know worked on pieces and worked on i don't know it's, it felt like it was like it was music but it was also like life mentoring <laughs> uh but what was kind of interesting is that i was the the school of the arts didn't really have uh any kind of jazz any kind of real organized jazz instruction there was this one guy mm. ron rudkin who led the big band um and then if there was interest he might like teach a little course you know but but mm. it wasn't like anything regular and the purpose of the big one was basically to teach these folks that were getting a classical education, like, you know, because they might do some kind of pops gig or so, you know, basically for the brass players and stuff yeah. like, oh, you, you know, you might have to learn how to read this. And when you look at it, you know, this is what it should, how you should play it. It was basically like that. Yeah. So, uh, so I was just kind of like trying to figure everything out on my own. So I mm -hmm. kind of didn't have like formal jazz education for kind of a long time, but I was also having you know quite formal uh music education yeah and it turns out that that i mean in retrospect that was kind of ideal you know i, I think yeah. you know to, to kind of like a really uh kind of rigorous it was a like great ear training program um classical theory so like oral you, skills and the whole nine yards you just teach the, that stuff and then like you know as far as the jazz stuff just you just figure it out by listening to records and, and <laughs> You know, yeah. I actually think it's kind of probably ideal. I mean, I find with my mm. my students now, sometimes I want to just teach them fundamentals. They, they seem to be, many of them seem to be so lacking. Um, you know, and I think fundamentals? 
in fundamentals. Yeah, because mm-hmm. the saxophone, I think, is just, it's just such a, like, the pedagogy is so all over the place. So it's just so likely that someone will show up, you know, in college and want to play jazz and just kind of have these kind of giant technical problems. Mm-hmm. That saxophone no one's, issues. Saxophone issues that no one's ever sort of helped them try to sort out or even just talked through with them. And, yeah. Uh if I'm lucky, they'll be patient enough to let me, to to let me do that. I, that's, mm-hmm. I sometimes really prefer that. I feel like if I can get them playing the instrument better, and then they can figure out the rest of it. You know. Yeah. Um. So how how have you been? I want to know like how you're doing and how you've been over. I mean, this it's been this. Probably the audience is getting tired of this, but I'm not. In terms of like, <laughs> we've all been through such a crazy year as artists as a musician so and you're you're normally kind of back and forth from new orleans to new york or are you primarily in new york these days yeah less and less i mostly have been in new york um okay uh i was trying to go like every year but uh, even that started to fall off right so how has the last 12 months 18 months whatever how's that how's how's it been for you i mean obviously gigs have kind of were gone for most everybody and but you released two well there were, you you released two recordings and then you were on at least a third that i know of last year i mean 2020 yeah i i think i actually weirdly put out three records but one of them was <laughs> uh one of them i had it was a project i started in 2009 called the ice siren mm-hmm. right right and um and every every aspect of that was slow because it was just a it's a huge project big and expensive and and yeah so it's just quite quite slow it just took forever so mm-hmm. it was actually it came out march 2020 wow uh yeah so very not the best timing but you know in some ways by the time it actually came out uh i was kind of just focused on on it less as a like oh this is going to be this thing and we're going to tour it and it's going to mm. it, it's just more like I guess uh, I've been thinking about my recording more like this anyway. It's just like sort of body of work thinking, which is just like, I love to record. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, as I've gotten older, I've wanted to figure out how to record more because you, mm-hmm. you start to understand time differently and you realize you don't have endless time to do these things. <laughs> right. Uh, and and it, the process of, re- of recording, especially recording, manufacturing, packaging, marketing, all the, all the, the stages can just be so so slow uh, mm. for me slower than i want to you know i feel like i have too many things i want to do i don't want to go that slow so uh so anyway yeah so the, the when the ice iron came out i just knew it was something i wanted to get out because it was something i had put so much into yeah but uh but it was kind of weird timing um I, you know I, I guess i sort of hope with the things that i do that that little by little I meet people in whatever capacity and maybe they circle their way around and check out the things I've done and, and realize that I do lots of different things. <laughs> but like a lot of the yeah. things I've done have been very, uh, very different from each other, which I think is how I like to be. But it also creates a lot of confusion for, for people <laughs> when they're like, what do you do really? Or, you know, like, right. where do you where how where do we put you? How do we how do we know where to Category. place you? Yeah, which box you going? Yeah, and it's that could be um, confusing, I think, for people. Yeah. But but yeah, so I, and then it, so those other two records that came out that weren't the Ice Siren were sort of quite different um, 
They're so it was big. a trio. Was there a trio album? Two trios, yeah. Okay. Two trios, yeah. Um, one of them was with Anwar Marshall and Madison Rast, who both live in in Philly. Well, they're, they're both basically Philly based. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Anwar is from Philly. Madison is from North Carolina. I'd known him from back when I went to the School of the Arts. He was there also okay. as a bass player, and he's a really old old friend. Um, uh, I've known him forever and ever. So yeah, so but I always wanted to do these some kind of little project with with him and so this we just kind of went to the studio and and played i've been trying to figure out how to make spaces for myself to do things that are less pointed towards grandiosity and and less pointed towards like oh this is my big thing and and, and more pointed towards informality and mm. leaves room in the studio for discovery don't don't have everything prepared you know i, I think about them sometimes like little fishing trips you know they're just like you're mm. going on a you know you get in the boat and you see what you catch and you, you know you don't you're not in control in that way and you leave room for for mistakes and for you know for not really knowing what's going to happen and also for just being in the space that you're in and what feels mm. right in that space uh, it's been really fun for me to think about recording that way so i started doing that um uh, I mean, a couple of years before, with mm. without really a strong understanding of how I was going to share that music, but I just wanted to have these sessions, these little fishing trip sessions, mm-hmm. and so I did quite a few of them, and the, the both of those records came out of that. So there's the one with Madison and Anwar, and then there's one with Yasushi Nakamura and Jason Marsalis. Mm. Um, so what were the the one was uh, when the world was young? When the world was young, and the other one is called All Things Bright. Okay, and that's the one with. Jason and All Things yeah. Bright is the, the other one. Yeah, yeah. The All Things Bright, I think I actually never put it. I never put it on the streaming site, so maybe you don't. You didn't yeah, see it. That's where you look. I, yeah, I think I, I always intended to, and I just never got around to it. It's it's on Bandcamp only, I guess, right now. Okay. Um, you know, I also came up with this interesting idea because, uh, you know, as as we know, the 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 idea of a physical CD is becoming more and more hard to 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 to, (laughs) hard to defend i guess yeah yeah uh people don't want it it's not you know it's just kind of we've moved to the streaming world um but of course there's there's this holdouts you know so and yeah people are into vinyl and stuff vinyl yeah but the cd you know there's still some holdouts of people who are like i really want to have a cd and i I like i like to have something physical too Mm -hmm. so i actually got these uh so for those t- those two trio records we were just speaking about, uh, I I got these little kind of do-it-yourself uh, digipack things that you you mm-hmm. actually just assemble, but they look really great. You just buy them and, and you put them together. Oh, cool. And and uh, and I got the I got artwork made as a sticker that I can stick onto the front of these things, and then I just kind of hand burn them or make them. Yeah. And they look fine. They look good. Like they have still have the artwork, and they still. You know, they have the, just the basic information you need. And people have been buying those on Bandcamp as they want to. And, uh, you know, it's not like I'm doing massive sales or anything, but it's kind of great because I don't have to print like a thousand of them and just yeah. leave have them, them you know, around. not know what to do with them. Yeah, I mean, it basically, like, it's, uh, they're kind of like made to order. Yeah. And on demand. So on demand and it's actually working it's working great for me because i feel like i still can have i still can have it as a physical thing and i can still share it with people um 
you know, if it, but it, it's a, almost like a little more special. Like I make each one of them, I write some stuff on it. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's kind of it's kind of a cool. It's kind of a high touch thing. That's awesome. I've been enjoying it. Yeah, I've been enjoying it, and I feel like that there is. I mean, we're dealing with neat, super niche things anyway. Like the people mm-hmm. that are interested in what it is that I do are already so niche. So I just feel like it's kind of like it's not really a problem to have it be like a extra niche. You know, right? Thing. It's kind of. It's kind of fine, you know. And yeah. At this point, you know, and if people don't want CDs, they just just get it, just listen to just it, digitally. Stream it, you know, just yeah. stream it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was just listening to an interview with Eminem, and he was talking about like cassettes. He's real into cassettes. Like he's got this huge. <laughs> yeah. Cassette collection. It's just interesting. What you know. What, I do know that those people are out there too, but I don't. I don't understand them. Like I'm not. I'm not. I'm so not one of them. You know. Yeah, like, I'm not cassettes either. were kind of annoying to me. Like I even when they same. were the main thing, they were always like getting stuck in the car. And, like I, thought, I was always trying to fix it up. Yeah. So I, I'm. Yeah. I'm not like holding on to cassettes so much. And yeah. Yeah. I'm and curious. I probably will make some vinyl of these things yeah, too yeah. at some point. That'd be but, cool. But uh, because partly the way they're done, they really do lend themselves to that because they're. Because you know, with vinyl, you have different technical uh, issues with how long things can be and, and mm. how long it can be on the side, and that's why the vinyl sequence is often different from the CD sequence. But but these are kind of done in such a way that it would be pretty easy to to make vinyl. Yeah. But it's just another thing, you know. It's costly, and it's like I would have to feel confident that people wanted that. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so I, I don't want to make a bunch of vinyl and have that also sitting around. Have you? Have you always lent towards trio stuff? Like, was was that something? Was that a format that you had early on, or it seems like you you've done a lot of trio work? Really? <laughs> I mean, well, the, the so the, I guess the two 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 parts answer. The first the first is that playing like with without chords. Yeah, was something I did a lot early in New Orleans because we had these little gigs for tips at these places that were mm-hmm. regular and and uh often it was me and this trumpet player named antoine dry and uh bass and drums and we played you know we had we had weekly gigs you know multiple days a week at different places you know wednesday at this place and thursday at this place that kind of stuff mm-hmm. um so yeah having the experience of playing chordless music was something that i did a lot but but actually documenting myself doing that or um or even just like playing standards, you know, like most of what I've been focused on is like sort of my own original compositions and that kind of stuff. I mean, the, there was a, you know, we used to do these gigs at La Lanterna all the time, which was this little place in the West Village, and that was always trios, and I did some of that, and some of that got kind of recorded. And, um, do you find it um, liberating to, to be in, a, in an ensemble without a chordal instrument? Oh, I, I find it to be both very liberating. It's something I love to do, but also mm-hmm. kind of daunting because, like, the saxophone trio, uh, it's like that template has been, it's been used to such great effect by mm-hmm. some of my biggest heroes. And, like, it's, like, part of the reason why I didn't do a lot of, like, I spent my life studying, you know, when I practice, it's, like, all, like often studying and playing standards. It's, like, kind of where my... Mm-hmm. jumping off places but in terms of what i would present as like this is me it wouldn't really be that partly because it's just like uh 
do I really want? I mean, I want to do it, but do I really want to hear it? Like, like, dude, mm. like if I'm if I'm a listener, and I know that there's you know, Sonny Rollins and and uh, you know Coltrane and Joe Henderson, State Lieutenant, and and yeah. you know all these things that are already out there. It's a it's a little bit of a daunting format, you know. To to that's why this kind of informal way of doing things just makes it a little easier for me to face because it, I don't feel I feel like it's just capturing something I like doing and it doesn't have to have this feeling of like I'm really showing the world that something yeah. you know it's just kind of yeah. is this more informal I don't know uh, I think that's partly what kept me from doing something like that earlier mm-hmm. because I don't know it's like it seems like the last thing we need is like another kind of sort of not so great version of something we already have you know i guess it's sort of like that like if if i have to choose between you know listening to sonny rollins you know way out west and you know, it's like john ellis you know i'm gonna go listen to sonny rollins because that sounds so good right uh, i hear you off his album when the world was young here is balu bolivar baluzar <laughs> varied interests though i mean like you were speaking to this like you're when you listen to your recordings they're um they're very they're quite different the projects that you you're involved in i just kind of want to yeah i just kind of feel like it's you know when i was playing with charlie hunter he used to always tell me like man you have a trio because trio is its most practical size group to tour with and if you have a trio you can afford to do this and that and the other and it's going to be mm-hmm. you know and I was just, I mean, to my own detriment in some ways, I was just never able to think like that. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, but I don't want to start from, I just want to start from, like, what is the music that's making me excited? Right. And where is the place that I feel like I can do something that, that I feel good enough about, that I can sh- feel, like, good enough about sharing that and saying, like, this is the thing I care about. And if I'm starting from, like, oh, this is cool because we can all fit in the van, it's just kind of like... I don't know. It just was hard for me to do it. You know, it was hard yeah. for me to think that way. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, like, uh, but certainly to my own detriment because a lot of the things that I do, you know, like this band Double Wide, that's kind of my New Orleans based thing. It's like there's a sousaphone and a Hammond B3 in this band and we live in different towns. Right. Know? 
so it's it's not like the easiest thing to tour although yeah. we've done surprising amount considering all those things but but uh yeah it's just kind of like i just get excited about these sounds of these things and i and i feel like there's something there that i want to honor which is just like that i that it, i'm excited about it and i want to try to make make something out of that and then the, the whole second side of it which is like we made this record and now how do we sell it and how do we go around tour and all that stuff that part is just 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 i just don't like it as much you know i just yeah. don't find myself you know it's i love the recording process and i you know and i i find the rest of that to just be it's interesting because i'm capable when i was younger i used to push to do it a lot more it's not that i can't do it it's just that it's it just makes me tired it's just i just yeah. don't really enjoy it and um um and sometimes it just feels like uh i don't know it's exhausting it would it's like yeah. I, I would almost rather just make some more records you know <laughs> instead of doing that right but, take your time to do those things rather yeah than. think about what could come next and you know and sh like learn and and uh reflect and think about you know how to make some more music that i love to make so yeah i it's it is true i, I have these i have a whole wild assortment of of projects that don't always fit together easily for people but i hope that if i can just keep doing it long enough that there'll be some kind of you know the the the, the, the accumulated weight of the things that i've done will start to be will, will start to make sense somehow yeah the collected um, work yeah yeah it's fun for us as a listener i think it's fun to hear hear you in all the different settings it's it's really cool you're not I like personally. I like artists who aren't just like this is this is my lane, and I'm sticking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sticking I, to I, it. I'm not. Uh, yeah, I just I'm not even like uh, against that doing it that way or anything. Yeah. I just kind of this is just kind of the only way this I know is, how to be. I don't. Yeah. I don't. I'm not doing it with any kind of strong oh, no. strong yeah. agenda. I just kind of it just kind yeah. of feels most natural for me to be this way. I, I sometimes get confused that it doesn't make sense to people i mean i remember one time i made it i made a record i've been playing for many many years with someone i went to school with who's a, a bass player from denmark named Annemette iverson mm -hmm. she lives in germany now and she's a great writer she writes these beautiful things they're they're like classical she gets she has a strong classical background so some of this kind of classical some of this kind of scandinavian it's just it's like beyond category but it's like you know yeah but it the uh I, someone was reviewing a record that I played, you know, that I played on that's hers, and they were like, "And John Ellis bringing his New Orleans swamp and something," and I was just like, "No, it's, it's like, it's yeah. not. It's like nothing it's about not it. That, not, yeah. not even a little bit. Like not even yeah. a tiny bit, you know. But just because that's what they, you know, I feel like that that's the problem with stories that don't, you know, because we as humans." we communicate with stories and stories are very important and and i understand mm -hmm. that but if your story is kind of like not always the same one or you know i think in, it's just people get confused <laughs> yeah it's, it's hard for reporters or writers i think yeah sometimes yeah how do we make sense of this if you know how does this fit into the story that we've you know that we've been telling yeah um, yeah. a lot of people this is interesting a lot of people really want me to be from New Orleans so I, I'm from North Carolina I went to New Orleans for school I stayed there right. for a few, few years after that so most of my life I've been either in North Carolina or New York more time in New York than anywhere else people still are like yeah man New Orleans man like, and, and I love New Orleans and I'm honored but I, I also think that that uh, 
it's just a better story. If if yeah. I, you know people, it's more, it, or they think it's more interesting. It's just better. It's just like <laughs> like the New Orleans part of the story is a story that people like more. It's like more appealing. <laughs> right. If you're like, nah, I kind of grew up in North Carolina. I went down there. I did this and that. It's like it, people just they just glaze over and they're like, yeah, yeah, New Orleans. And, I mean, and, you know, I, I do have this band that's got a sousaphone in it, um, and it has some New Orleans s- stuff. But yeah. you know, I write. I've been writing all the music. It's kind of just this wacky band. So, I mean, I've yeah. never told anyone I'm from New Orleans right, ever, right. ever, ever in my life. No. So that it's actually because yeah. I think being from New Orleans is something that I take so seriously. Like, if, if you're from New Orleans, I think that that's a me- very meaningful thing. So I would never pretend to be from New Orleans. Yeah. But people assign me that uh, because yeah. they just like the way it sounds. So it's, it yeah. is. The story thing is quite interesting to me. It is interesting. It is. How did you meet Charlie Hunter? I met Charlie Hunter uh, outside of a key food grocery store in uh, Brooklyn. <laughs> Just totally randomly, literally outside. Uh, my roommate at the time was this bass player named Wayne Bachelor, mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, that's Charlie Hunter. We should go say hi. And I was like, nah, don't say hi. I was like, oh, no, no, don't bother and he kind of like, he was just more gregarious than me, I guess. And he just went over there and introduced himself. And then I followed sheepishly. And uh, mm-hmm. and it just turned out that Charlie, he he had he knew who I was because he, through Stanton Moore, I had, been, I had done some playing with Stanton Moore okay. uh, when I was in New Orleans. And so Charlie was like, oh, yeah, Stanton told me about you. Anyway, it, it was... It was just weird coincidence that he was like trying to put a new band together. I didn't know any of this, mm-hmm. and he he just was like, "Oh yeah," and uh, but it was literally I literally just met him on the sidewalk, and uh, <laughs> that's so and awesome. that's to his credit, you know, that he's like cool like that. But then he was like, "Oh, you know what? We should play," and he he just was like, "Why don't we, why don't we get together and play?" And we just did this thing at a little rehearsal space. Mm-hmm. And uh, I never thought it was gonna turn into anything. And then, and then his manager called me. He was like, "Do you have a passport?" And I was like, "Yeah, I have a passport." He's like, "Oh, can you do this gig?" And so we did a gig. I think the first gig I did with him was uh, in Argentina. Mm. And uh, it was never. He never. He never said he was auditioning me. He never said he was looking to have me in the band. He just asked. He we just played. And then he asked me to do a gig. And then, the, then they asked me to do another gig, and then, and you know, it's just like after a while, I was like, oh, maybe I'm doing this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in but the it was cool. It was that. very cool in that way. Like it didn't. Yeah. It wasn't. It was really casual, and I felt like I could easily just do one gig and not play again. You know, it, it sure. didn't. There was no promises made or anything. But I did it for like five and a half years. So, and you were on several albums with him too, right? Yeah, four, I think. I did his last one for Blue Note, which was uh, called Songs from the Analog Playground. That was, mm. the, that was the first one I did was his last one for Blue Note. And then we did, I think all the rest of them were on Ropadope. It was like Friends Seen yeah. and Unseen, Copperopolis, and uh, Right Now Move. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Fun music. And what really a fun, fun guy. Really fun music. Really, really fantastic fantastic human it was a it was a great it was a great time to get to spend all that time with him in the van and he he's a he's such a he's the ultimate autodidact you know he's like a self-taught absolutely brilliant person uh, yeah so yeah it was, it was great i learned a lot 
fat What's, grooves man those grooves are like incredible crazy. right incredible incredible yeah it's it's, it's interesting because the way we played uh i was always to his to his left and he was turned towards the drummer so i would see the back of his mm-hmm. i wouldn't really see his hands yeah and uh and then you just kind of accept it as like it's just this what it is you know you don't think about it too much and then i, I remember i went to see him i had been playing with him for years and i went to see him do a concert solo at the montreal jazz festival and i was looking at his hands and i was like wow (laughs) even though i was in his band i was still just like what the hell is that like how is he doing that yeah uh so i think it was better that i couldn't see because i think i would have been kind of like oh i'm in the band too i mean it's just too too much to it's it is it is quite it's quite amazing that, that he that he does that and also just that his priorities are are they're so like groove groove yeah. based priorities and uh to do all of that and make it make it groove that hard is is crazy yeah i'm always impressed that it's it's not just like it's not a device it's just he's just making great music with it like it's, that's right it's not like a it's not like a sideshow you know it's like it's actually that's the thing I think that you he's know. always struggled with. That's the thing he's always struggled with. Because, you know, it, it is a sideshow in a way. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I mean, I think that's the problem in some ways. It's like, it's not a sideshow because it's so substantive. Yeah. But it is also this thing that's kind of superhuman, like ap- right. acrobatic feat, right? So it's like, there are people, there's no question there are people who are more attracted to that part of it and don't yeah. maybe are not as sensitive to the to the substantive part. And I know that that creates attention. You know, I mean, I know for him, he always felt a little bit like, I don't want to only be seen as this kind of circus act. Yeah. Um, and so I think partly that pushed him to, to care more and more and more about the, you know, making sure that if you actually want to check in with it as just music, that there would be so much for you there, you know? And so, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting, interesting road, but it, yeah, it's, it is, it's nearly part of the reason there's not a whole bunch of Charlie Hunters out here doing that now is that it's just nearly impossible. That that instrument is insane. Yeah, you know, it's, like, <laughs> it's crazy. It's just not. It's just not really a thing that. Yeah. That's, can be done very easily. So. No, no, uh, not at all. He used to always tell us like, "Yeah, man, this guy, this this guy coming up, he's really something." And then then the guy would come to the sound check and he'd play a little bit and he'd be like, "Nah." <laughs> he was like he was very supportive you know he wanted to have right. other people going for it but it would just be like nah, that dude can't play like that not really right that's um, really funny weirdly the, the one of the guys that sounded the best on that this is very weird is John Mayer like he, he actually oh he, really he got one and practiced and like I mean he was not gonna sound like Charlie but he, yeah. he actually figured it out how to play a little bit you know like pretty sure. pretty, pretty impressive you know considering wow. Yeah. He was such a fan. Like, wow, John Mayer was like the ultimate Charlie Hunter fan. <laughs> Very Weird cool. dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about this the sting thing that you were you so it was if if on a winter's night you were involved yeah. in that project somehow? How did that come yeah. about? Very circumstantially. I mean that that was uh so I have a really another really important mentor from my time at the new school who's this guy named Robert Saden. Mm-hmm. And I took his class, which uh, which his class is just called something so very vague and just sort of neutral. It's it's called special topics. 
and then it and then it has like a special topic that's colon and then it has like some other thing sure and basically his his world is sort of the intersection of 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 classical music and and jazz so he sort of teaches it's hard it's hard to put it in words but he sort of teaches classical music but with it from a jazz sensibility um Mm. or he tries to incorporate like the way jazz musicians might think and encourage that and so the, the 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 you know we do things like uh when i was taking the class we were studying dvorak's uh oh no not dvorak debussy's la mer mm-hmm. and you know just immediately you start trying to write orchestral music right from the beginning without any like you should know this or that or the other and you just he he just throws you in the deep end and and you just we were just you know taking la mer and just doing things with it rewriting the cello parts or saxophones and trying to write all the chord symbols above as if it was a jazz a jazz piece it's just really cool very in, like you take you feel like it's all usable like let me just take some of this and do something mm-hmm. with it it was so, so helpful because the classical music sometimes feels like oh the great composers it's pretty, everything is perfect we can't possibly even think about you right. know and his thing is like nah let's just tear it all apart and turn it upside down and play with it and that and therefore like learn maybe how they might have been thinking yeah. and in the meantime try to write immediately try to write some stuff and then look at it next to that and say like okay what does this sound like compared to this and it's just you know so then you really get us you're like wow okay i start i really understand how how serious this is <laughs> like when you try to start doing it yeah. anyway he was fantastic and he his life uh professional life was uh involved these hybrid projects you know like kathleen battle is performing with winton or or uh you know various projects with strings or, or he did a lot of things with Wayne Shorter and Herbie Hancock. Oh, wow. He would never tell us about any of this stuff, but he, he was a mentor. We became f- friends after the class. Uh, I still, I still, uh, very much admire him and, and talk to him. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he produced that record. Um, okay. Deutsche Gramophone hired him to write the, they want this thing to do a Christmas record. Yeah. Uh, they hired they hired uh, Bob to to write the like the the proposal essentially, and and Bob wrote this kind of like he just that's all he thought he was gonna do, and he kind of wrote this thing that was like the, the pretty much like an anti Christmas record in some ways. <laughs> and I think Sting loved it. Sting was like, "Who is this guy? Like this guy, this this guy's great." Uh, mm. And uh, they just started talking, you know, and then little by little, it's at some point Bob ended up producing the record. It was just the circumstances. And then, and then basically the record was done. Mm-hmm. For all intents and purposes, it was done. And then Bob wanted to just like a few little, he wanted to sort of bring a few of his guys that he liked. Or, and I had done things for him just at his house and all kinds of stuff, you know. So he just thought, oh, wouldn't it be nice to... I feel like he kind of snuck me on that record in a way, you know. It's oh, like, really? how how do I get, you know, like it was like get me on it just enough so that Sting would like not so much that Sting would be like, don't do that, and like, but just right. enough that it added a little something. So, so yeah, it was just kind of like went and did some little overdubs. Yeah. Sort of at the very end, you know, it was just sort of like anybody's guess if it would even stay on. But do you remember which tracks? Uh, I'm just yeah. curious. I don't. I don't know the names of. Actually, the, I actually played a soprano solo on that one with the Kenny Garrett soprano solo, whichever one that is. There was three. There was like a, but it didn't didn't make the cut for various reasons. But but I, yeah, okay. Bob. He Bob had me do a lot of things. Not everything, you know, made it. 
Sure. There was uh, something, um, Hounds, Hounds of Winter or something the like Hounds that. Hounds of Winter? Bass yeah. clarinet on there. Yeah. Did you go to the show when they played in New York? Didn't I think they played that. I didn't. In a couple of cities. I never saw it live. I think my, my friend Joe Lowry was maybe in the band. Yeah, she was she was in there with uh, Lila Bialy was also. Singing. Oh, Lila also. That's right. Lila too. Yeah. That's yeah. right. I remember that there was Lila was in there. Yeah, there was a whole that it was that was interesting because they were not uh because my uh association with the record I didn't even know that they would it was almost like that's how these things are done. I think yeah. they just you do the record and then there's like the live thing is just a completely entirely separate thing. Right. So yeah, no, I didn't actually get to see it live. Um but it was it was cool. I mean, when you know when I went to track, Sting was there. It was basically like Sting was doing oh, really? vocal, vocal overdubs. Did you get to it meet was, him? I met him. Yeah, he was just doing like vocal overdubs, and uh, and then he let like Bob Bob would like wait for Sting to leave, and then we would do stuff. That's why I felt <laughs> it felt so covert. You know, it felt very covert. That's funny. <laughs> it was like okay, he's gone. We got thirty minutes. Go get in here and let's do stuff. thirty minutes to see if we can get something on a track that 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 might not get cut. <laughs> right. Uh, no, it was cool. It was a great opportunity. That's awesome. How fun. Yeah. Tell me about studying with um, with with Ellis Marcellus. What was what was that experience like? It was amazing. It was a. Uh, was uh he was uh, you know probably my best my favorite he and he and Harold were like my favorite jazz teachers because they were so so much like mentors mm-hmm. uh, and so like socratic you know that just just very like pushing you towards the questions and uh and that's kind of it, just guides. And and I got a chance mm-hmm. to play with him a lot. I mean, Ellis... Um, you played gigs with him. I did. The first time I ever went on the road anywhere was with Ellis. And I think I was 18. How did that feel? Scary. I mean, it felt, it felt exciting, but it also felt... I mean, you got to think, like, I'm coming from a school of the arts, like we were speaking about before, yeah. where I had virtually no formal jazz education so I, I i really felt like when i finally went to university of new orleans that i was like a beginner in a way but i had been doing all this like diligent like uh stuff you know like uh mm-hmm. just on my own like transcribing and stuff learning things and but i was like oh finally you know i'm gonna be able to like really learn this stuff and then i and then it, it, it was sort of a weird moment for me when I realized that like oh this stuff I had been doing that I thought was just like whatever because I wasn't able to have uh, any more formal study was actually like great and that I was be- I was just like I was better than I thought I was you know like oh, I was wow. like oh, I was able to to play I don't know I was like you know it was just hard for me to make sense of it because I was like thinking like oh I'm so behind you know like mm. I was used to being behind because of like I joined the class as an oboist, and you know I just was like yeah, my yeah. whole mentality was like I was behind, and then suddenly I was like, really, I'm, I, this is cool, like I, I'm I'm doing okay. It was a, um, it was a kind of a jarring time. So yeah, yeah. so like Ellis, sort of after I started studying with him a little bit, then he then he started inviting me to play with him, and then it was right around this time there was a Branford record that came out where they had played. Um, 
Actually, I forget. Was it under Branford's name or Ellis's name? It was Whistle Stop. I think it was under Branford's name. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was. Whistle Stop. And it was like all these, you know, these tunes of Ellis's and and um, James Black, especially. There was a there was an era in the 60s where, you know, Ellis had this quartet that was like a real uh, important modern jazz really event in New Orleans. And it... Mm. it it's really special this this music and it's kind of not widely known outside of New Orleans and there's a record you can still buy called the classic Ellis Marsalis and it's a compilation of a couple of these albums mm-hmm. but it was a really really great band and James Black was playing drums and they were writing these tunes and that would have like weird bars or they would be in odd time signatures and it's just really unique music yeah. and uh, and not not widely known outside of New Orleans so anyway Brantford sort of recorded some of these tunes and 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 um and I ended up playing, uh, yeah, I ended up playing some of the gigs basically with Ellis to promote that. It must have been an Ellis record actually, because it was we were promoting that record. Um, Do you remember the first the first big gig you did with him? Well, I mean, they all felt big to me, but like we played at <laughs> Snug Harbor. That was, but th- this gig where we went on tour, that which was it was, uh, we were playing at um, McNeese. Uh, State University, which is in Lake Charles, mm-hmm. so that was like the first actual like touring thing, and it was teaching and all of that. It was so like, like a college, college gig, yeah, it was a college yeah. gig. Um, yeah, it was a. Uh, it was interesting. It was interesting. I was. I, I remember feeling quite like nervous because some, some of the tunes are really hard. Uh, Who else was in the band? Too. It was David Paulfus was playing bass and uh i think martin butler was playing drums and jason marsalis actually generally did it but at that time he was too young like he was like too young to travel (laughs) so i think jason was doing the gigs like when they were in town but yeah he was really young he was probably like 14 or something like that (laughs) wow and did ellis continue mentoring you when you guys were on the road would he give you a lot of feedback or not really no i mean well you just like stories and he was very generous like very Mm. uh it's like the mentoring kind of comes more like as as a um he was very philosophical he was Mm -hmm. very uh you know reflective even then he just like uh, else is a very sort of deep and thoughtful guy but also very generous you know like uh mm. the the whole sort of aggressive thing that is associated in some ways with like his sons and all of that it's it's a i think that's a six boy kind of syndrome you know you have six <laughs> sons and they right, scrap, all fighting. scrapping fighting <laughs> against each other to see who can stand out you know ellis is yeah very much like not gonna take any like he would call out something if he thought it was like BS, uh, mm. like for sure. And he would like have these ways of like sort of humbling you if you were like full of yourself. But I wasn't really like that, you know. Like yeah. then, I mean, so but he, you know, he was just like he was very kind to me. He was like a like I was struggling to play that music, but I was not pretending. Like I think if I had been acting like I was playing it great and not playing it great that's when ellis has the strongest <laughs> like he he will really he will really humble yeah. you if you if you're acting uppity you know but i, I was yeah. 
you know, he just had these great little things he said. You know, he said he used to say stuff like, "If you play for applause, that's all you ever get." <laughs> you know, I, I, mm. I, that always resonated with me. That's um, a great quote. But uh, yeah, he's just he was he was great. He was great. I just remember telling telling stories. You know, reflecting on mm-hmm. everything. What a gift to have him as a mentor. Awesome. It really, really was. It really was, and I've been reflecting on that quite, quite often. Because you know, he he passed away at the beginning of this COVID time. Yeah, it was so tragic. Um, yeah, and it was like you know, when when Harold had died, Harold Baptiste, who was like the other mentor yep. of mine there. You know, I I knew I wasn't going to miss that funeral. You know, I I I, I went down there and uh, and it, it was like really important. I just went down for the funeral and came back. But but uh. To not be able to do that for Ellis was tough because I would have loved to have been there, you know. Yeah. And I just didn't have didn't have that. You know? Yeah. Oh, there's a big storm coming here. I hear it. Wow. Here's John and his group Double Wide off the album Charm. This is called Snake Handler. <laughs> George Garzon also, right? I did. What was that was, what great. was that like? Well, it was I mean, first of all, George is just so fun and funny and he's like you know. What sorts free. of things would you guys work on? Well, George like has he has these like ways of thinking about triads and half steps and things like that that mm-hmm. like how he constructs these it's sort of like an organized way to get into a kind of avant space, but it still sounds clear, mm-hmm. you know. 
so I was just sort of like dutifully trying to understand this stuff. You know, it's like sort of like you take a, I mean, it's, I don't know. I, the, the main thing I remember was sort of like, a, you know, you, t- you play a triad, you play, play a triad in any sequence of notes, and then you move a half step, and then that note becomes either the root third or fifth of another triad. And you try to be able to improvise using these kinds of, like structural logic, you know, like triad yeah. based, triad and chromatic based logic and try to see if you can make things happen. And, you know, f- he had practiced so much he could do it like blisteringly <laughs> fast and it would just sound like this incredible thing. You know, it'd be like, what is that? But we did all kinds of stuff. You know, we turned the lights off, we'd play free, we'd like, mm-hmm. uh, it was fun. Yeah. How long were you studying with him? Well, I was at the new school for two years. Uh, I probably took, at that time they they let you they let you study with sort of like multiple people in the same semester but he was like my primary teacher i think for pretty much all that time for sure but uh yeah he had all these like little technical exercises but then we would just try to figure out how to it's interesting because i i i would work on all that stuff but i would i also felt like because i would hear some of the other students doing it and I, I felt like the this is back to what we were talking about before with the rhythm and the mm-hmm. that if you don't learn a lot of language that it just doesn't sound good. So like the thing right. about George is that like at the center of all of that for him is just this kind of classic sounding stuff like bebop and like I mean he's he's just got a lot he knows the language of the music. So then when he starts playing things that sound really crazy and out, it's informed by all the lessons of learning these, just learning how to play in a more in a more I don't know for lack of a better term like straight ahead way yeah and um, and so I think what happens is that sometimes people will get super excited about his conceptual stuff but they didn't have that you know and so it would it would end up being cool also it's not to say it wasn't but it would sound different to me I would be like this doesn't sound the same you know like so you know we chatted about that and, mm-hmm. and uh, I found myself kind of trying to see if there's a way to like uh, sort of get to the feeling of it, <laughs> you know. Like sometimes, mm-hmm. like a, the certain way of playing it in an abstract way or, or the outside way has a certain feeling that you yeah. can maybe get to also without actually being quite as uh, uh, sort of calculated or something like yeah. that. So yeah, yeah. I was trying to figure out that too, if I could kind of get to how it feels without actually uh, having it sound too. Because sometimes if it sounds too worked out, it's just I don't know. Just to, I never really responded to music that sounded like that. Like it too intellectual or too. Yeah, worked I don't out. mind. I, I think intellectual is important. It, it just was more like too, uh, too cold or too mm-hmm. too. Uh, not actually present. You know, you can be very intellectual and be still quite present. Right, you know, right, something, right. Uh, something about like a, I mean, to me, no one's more intellectual than Charlie Parker. So I mean, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just a question of like, does it, does it sound, uh, like just patterns, or does it sound like it's yeah, it's like, actually connected to something? Yeah, yeah, maybe organic. It's hard to find the right words to describe. Yeah, I know thing. what you mean. Not contrived. It's just. It's like but contrived uh, is like maybe a good way to think about it. Yeah, it's like that. It kind of would feel a contrived if it just was. Yeah, like how do yeah. you connect it to something that's not just this thing for the sake of this thing somehow? Right, it's right. It's like because all of this abstraction still has an emotional like part of what why we respond to it or or don't respond to it is this something that it's giving us emotionally? Yeah, 
Exactly. Uh, yeah, I hear that. So, I don't know. George, George's stuff was always really warm. Like, it was like his... When he played, like, in this out way, it felt like a big bear hug to me. Like, it felt like <laughs> a big, giant, like, loving embrace. You know, and then you would hear other people doing that, and it would feel really not like that. <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. It would like fingernails on a chalkboard. So yeah. it was like, I, I want to get that, that warmth in there somehow. Like, um, yeah. I'm down with that, yeah. for sure. <laughs> right. So what are, what are you working on currently? Do you have some projects in the works? Uh, I, you know, I do. I still have, I still have quite a few of these recording things that I did that are not, uh, not, not finished, like not mixed, not, not mastered. I have, I made another double wide record, um, mm -hmm. in the fall of 2019. So we're coming up on a two year anniversary and that's yet to be mixed. So I have all this stuff like that that I need to deal with. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of it is kind of like that. I haven't, I have really haven't been, I haven't really been doing like a lot of COVID writing. Like I know that some of my friends have been doing, I've, I've kind of been doing some practicing and doing some thinking and doing some, like a lot of investment in the other parts of my life that are not musical. Um, which has also been kind of cool. I got caught up in this, like trying to renovate an apartment and all <laughs> stuff. It's just stuff that's like, maybe yeah, not just life, life things. Life. Yeah. Um, which I think some of that's inevitable when, uh, when work stops, uh, yeah. you know, that, that suddenly then you're something else calls out for your attention in yeah. a way that's hard to, to get away from. You have to, you have to do that. So anyway, I've been busy with a lot of other things, but I have all of these recordings still that I need to deal with. And I also, um, weirdly enough, I like for a festival that I've been doing for years, um, down in the Caribbean, it's actually in the it's it's in the winter time. It's in the Caribbean. It's like it couldn't be better. And it's a classical. Mm. It's mostly a classical festival, but they have a jazz mm. artist. And so um, anyway, they 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 had a, a one year where their whole theme for the whole thing was Carmen, and they did like everybody did Carmen. They had like the orchestra playing Carmen and opera, you know, oh, singers fun. doing Carmen. Lots of different Carmen stuff. And there's all these different spin-off Carmen pieces. There's like a like a violin piece that's very technical i forget what mm -hmm. it's called uh and so they were like oh we want you to to you know you as the jazz group are you're also going to do carmen and i was like we are they were like yeah yeah you're going to write these arrangements um <laughs> and so so i did and so i basically have like an album's worth of of carmen oh, arrangements fun. for jazz quartet of like that i sort of reimagined the the main some of the main the main material and mm. Anyway, it's, not, it's a, another thing that I ended up spending a lot of time on, but we just did one gig, which is like, right. I've done a lot of this in my life, you know, it's like, wow. So, we're going to try to record that to uh, next month, hopefully. Awesome. Um, you said you were practicing more than writing over COVID. What, what, what were you work? was there anything specific you were working on, or what, what is your practice and or what does your practice routine generally look like? Um, well, that's tough. It's not, it's, it's not particularly... Uh, I get into things for, mm -hmm. short, for short or long periods of time, depending on what they are. Yeah. And so, th so it's hard to say. But uh, 
one of the things I've, I had time to do, which was kind of fun, was like investigate uh, a lot of my equipment, uh, like to to think about it, to to think about. Uh, I did some experimentation with with mouthpieces and reeds on basically all of my instruments, so on mm-hmm. soprano, clarinet, bass clarinet, and tenor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did a lot of sort of investigation. I did a lot of study on reeds and how and how they're made and how they grow. And uh, and I actually finally started altering them a little bit, okay. which was a natural outgrowth of the study because I was an oboist and because right, I kind of left oboe like on purpose. You know, I basically like I don't want to deal with this because the reed thing is like a total nightmare. Yeah, um, I sort of decided I don't want to have to deal with I'm just going to play a saxophone read and if it works and if it doesn't work I'll just play a different one or whatever I just yeah. I didn't want to have to think about the read thing yeah but I finally have come around to realizing that, that that's not very smart at least for me it's not the smartest way it's easier for me to to learn some things about how the, what a reed is and how it's made, what it's supposed to do, and, and then start to make little adjustments. Because they're just... I realize that the inconsistency that we are all upset about is actually just part of it. That's just what we can... That's what we should expect. The, yeah. The inconsistency is really hardwired into the whole thing. And, uh, you know, I just learned all these interesting things, like that reeds are not, for example, reeds are not cut to strength sizes, which is something i remember someone talking about but i never really got it through my head but i really spent some time thinking about that it's pretty Mm. fascinating to think about which is they're measured after they're cut and they're cut to a certain profile based on the the brand or whatever the particular you like they all have a different kind of proprietary profile but the strength sizes are just totally after the fact they just have a little thing that measures measures yeah, and then they say they just say okay, well this one measures this and this one measures that. So you know, that tells you that they could all have a hundred different sizes if they wanted to. Instead right. of instead of one through five, you could have one through a hundred. You just have to yeah. calibrate that machine. And so, the idea that you know you buy a box of threes or fours or whatever that they're they're going to be, they're not really anything. They were never made to be that. They're just right. whatever. And, and they're going to be, depending on how they decide, you know, where to calibrate, there's going to be a lot of variation, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that that's, that's uh, to be expected. So that also is like a little bit liberating to start thinking about how do you adjust them and how do you mm-hmm. figure out what feels comfortable and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that was a bunch of nerdy things I did around that. And then, uh, are you gonna start you know, buying reed blanks and like? I don't want to go any further. <laughs> I don't want to go any further. No, I, I kind of like where I'm at. I mean, I want to. Yeah. I want to learn a little more. Yeah. But um. But you know, I found these mouth crazy mouthpiece guys. There's like a really amazing kind of mouthpiece uh, clarinet mouthpiece guy. Uh, but he does saxophone too. I haven't I haven't tried that yet. But mm. he's from Belarus. He was like not that. He didn't even do this as a vocation. He was like a build houses or something he's just kind of like super wow. gifted guy that knows how to tweak mouthpieces and make them do things so anyway i just found i did a lot of that kind of stuff um and i tried did you to end learn up with tunes. some new mouthpieces yeah or oh yeah yeah what yeah, are I mean, you I've, what are you playing on tenor right now i'm just curious 
so the the tenor thing that I got into years ago is is really bizarre. It's like I, I find these old Morgans. If they're old, the older they are, somehow the well, that's not always true. But there's there's a certain era of Morgan blanks mm-hmm. that I really like, and they're just like the they're not the Excaliburs. They're not the ones with the metal ring. They're just they're like yeah. the Morgan, you know, L is what it says. Sure. And so you know, Ralph had had these these blanks, and he. Uh, he, the the thing that he called large chamber was actually sort of medium chamber. It was not actually as large as the largest chamber mouthpieces. And the first mouthpiece that Holy got me to start playing because he thought it might work as a little bit of both was a Morgan. And so I think I just got acclimated to that or so yeah. early. And then I went and played all the different. Tried to play like all the Auto Link and everything. And I mean, I still have I have a lot of mouthpieces. I've tried a lot of stuff, but yeah, I circled back around and I got. My friend Adam Nywood, uh, who I love his his work on these mouthpieces, to open some of these to tip opening that I I like. I end up playing a, about a one fifteen tip opening, which is like an eight star, and uh, mm-hmm. and so I have a handful of these. What happens is I get them when they're smaller. Sometimes they're like quite a bit smaller, and he opens them, and it's a little bit of a roll of the dice. You know what's going to happen? It's, yeah. It's nice that he humors me because the ones I get, the ones I tend to like are the ones that are opened quite a lot. Yeah. And I think they start to turn into something else. Um, but they're not all the same. I mean, I, in the beginning, it's like you find one you like. You're like, oh, man, I, Adam, I got to get you to make me another one of these because this one is the one. And then he makes another one and it's like it's different. The same. And I started to embrace that too. It's like the reeds. It's like, it's, it's, I think it's not useful to think about trying to make another thing that you like you just you know or a replica i mean it's just like try to try to make something else that you like and see maybe you'll like it more so i kind of got into that with him a little bit and um the cool thing about these morgans they're not you know they're not expensive they're not so coveted you know they're you're not like looking for this weird collectible thing i i feel like they they work the best for me the combination of the of the chamber and if, if you open it up so, I mean, if it's like a really big chamber, then the eight star is a little bit too big, you know. Mm-hmm. But but for me, the combination of the chamber that he has and the and the tip, right. it gives me um, it gives me the things that are that I like, I guess. I mean, cool. Uh, which is so like I want to have have enough dynamic range. I want to be able to play quiet. You know, it's like the things we were talking about before. I want if it's yeah, I'm yeah. playing with strings, I want to be able to play with strings. I want to be able to play in tune. I want to be able to have it be beautiful. Then I want to have it be like out of bounds also but but i but i don't generally like the feel of the metal pieces just because they mostly just the narrow just the yeah. way it feels not about the sound i don't you know the sound mouth is, feel. yeah the mouth feel i mean metal pieces in many ways are, are i think superior they're just because they're so much more strong you know yeah. like they're just they're, they're durable the durability i would like to be able to play metal but it just that feeling of it in my mouth yeah. i don't like it i'm just too yeah. used to the rubber yeah cool you were about to say what you were practicing we got a little bit into oh no i was just like you know at the beginning i was still doing all my stuff that i did before which is like all this kind of uh you know i do a lot just a lot of uh tangential like i have these like uh um different systems mm-hmm. like if it's a technical thing it's like a different system so a system might be yeah. like how do you divide the beat versus how do you group the beat and then the, then it's like okay so now 
there's the theoretical systems which are like you know um, triads or, or yeah, yeah. Uh, triads with additional notes and then like how do you displace it with the octave and how do you so I have these kind of um, or then there's like chromatic ones and there's diatonic ones and, and so I have all these different like uh, systems that I can borrow pieces of and th- that I've worked on for long enough that they all are these like threads they're like yeah. threads that I can access and be like, oh that's the thing that I've been it doesn't I can get to a thing that's difficult for for me to do very very quickly so I <laughs> by, but, but it's not like I never feel like oh I don't know what to do right so so I kind of work on these things you know mm-hmm. uh, you know make these little games kind of for myself and, and then and then you know learning tunes um, I, I early in the pandemic I was actually playing clarinet a lot mostly just because clarinet is the one that I feel like I never have time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm always just barely holding it together enough to do whatever it is I'm supposed to do, but I, I never like get to a place of real comfort. Mm. Or, or or just like, there's something about like, with an instrument at least, because I wasn't a strong doubler like with all these instruments when I was young. Yeah. Uh, I feel like if you don't have an, a daily investment yeah. to move it to a new place, and then if you don't play for a long time, you come back, you're still, you know, you're a little down, but you're not like back to the beginning. So yeah. I felt like I just needed to spend some time with clarinet. And I think I kind of pushed the ball, you know, down the field a tiny bit more. Cool. Um, so yeah, that was, I was, it's also like I never would have time in my normal life to just not play tenor for a lot of days in a row. <laughs> You know, because it's just too many things I got to do that are right. that I that I too feel many like demands. I, yeah, and I feel like I have to, you know I have expectations of myself to be at a certain you know place, and so if I just let it go for too long, then I start to get depressed. So, but I could you know during this time it didn't matter as much, so I could just like try to play these other instruments for a while. And, yeah. Um, so that was actually great, and then I kind of got sidetracked with, like I said before, just life yeah. life yeah. things. Do you still transcribe? Sometimes, yeah, yeah, I did a little transcription during this time. Uh, cool. Yeah, I mean, I I do. I would say the thing that I do the most often around transcription is like, is just like tune learning, like mm-hmm. taking. Um, like I haven't I haven't done too much. Like I'm gonna sit down and transcribe this whole solo. Right. I haven't really done that in a while, but I do a lot of like learning things by ear. Mm. Um, so like tune learning like I might really get into like uh, trying to check out every version of something and trying to figure out all the different ways that the different people play it trying to come Mm. up with and um, I find it's helpful for me to it's maybe more helpful than to try to learn single single line things is to actually like sit and try to transcribe voicings you know listen to piano players listen to their comping try to figure out exactly the notes they're playing in all the chords and that, that kind of stuff. I think that that's challenging. Uh, it's challenging, but it's, but it's also, uh, it's more helpful at this stage somehow, you know, just to see how, yeah. So I do some, some, tr- like some of that kind of stuff, like learning mm-hmm. a tune. Cause we can get lost in these symbols, you know, like the tune yeah. has this chord symbol. It's like, well, the chord symbol is just not, what is it really? Who knows? Right. But the, but then when you're like really like these are the notes, yeah, know, the exact notes, you know, for some something like Monk, right, or or something like that, you know, like these are the notes that he played, and there's just so much more to gain from 
yeah. actually sitting and playing those notes than, than like, uh, you know, trying to read something. Yeah, reading the chart. Um, yeah. yeah, so I still do a lot, a lot of that stuff when I have the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you have, uh, do you have any gigs booked this year or do you have like some performances coming up? Actually, lately it got, it got a little bit busier again. I played on this past Friday, I played at Minton's. It's, it's interesting. I've been like sub, sub, uh, territory I'm subbing. I subbed for my friend Lucas Pino. Mm -hmm. It was a, um, CD release party of this, this woman bass player named Adi Meyerson. Mm -hmm. And very interesting music, but primarily the book I was playing is primarily a bass clarinet book with like one tenor thing. So, uh, so I did that, and then the following day I, I went up to Plattsburgh to play a couple of gigs up there. That was the the Jensen sisters, Christine and Ingrid Jensen, were yeah supposedly playing, but Christine couldn't get across the border, so uh, so I was Christine Jensen. I was subbing for her, <laughs> and. Um, and actually, Ingrid couldn't make the first gig either, so it was extra weird. It was like a sort of like a Jensen Sisters gig with neither of them there, but with, <laughs> with me there playing their music. Um, but then wow. Ingrid came the next day, and it was great. And anyway, cool. I, yeah, I did a couple of those gigs, and then um, this coming weekend, I'm going to San Jose to play with Helen Song at the San Jose Jazz Festival. Oh, fun. Um, yeah, and there's some things. I mean, I'm, I'm, in October, I have quite a lot. September, some stuff. October, I'm supposed to go play with Ed Simon in uh, Switzerland. That'll be the first time, uh, you know, in this kind of post-vaccination yeah. world that that, uh, that I actually, like, go out of the country. So I'm kind of curious about that, how yeah. that goes. Cool. Uh, Where can uh, people find out more about John Ellis? Is your website the best place to go oh, my website's kind of a mess but yeah sure i think there's some probably some good information there it's uh i haven't updated things there in quite some time i mean i have a Bandcamp page which is like if you want to listen to music or okay there's some things there so yeah uh john axon ellis.com is my website that's a x s o n is my middle name okay um and then um yeah you can just sort of search for me on Bandcamp. i'm there i have i have all the you know basics i guess instagram yeah. what's your facebook. instagram or facebook handle john ellis music okay yeah that's and then a, you have a youtube channel also right yeah i don't know that i don't even know what the <laughs> urls are for all these things off the that's top why of my head. i can it's really find bad. Them put them in show notes it's really time. bad yeah help help me yeah um cool well hey john thanks so much for being on the show it's been uh been a lot of fun for me. Yeah. Oh yeah. For me too. To you and uh, we we have a we're gonna weed out all the people that don't love <laughs> super deep dive saxophone. Right. They're gonna. So. I'll put a little note like if you're not into saxophone, you might want to skip, skip ahead. <laughs> yeah, to, to 23 minutes and 40. Yeah, yeah. You have like whatever. little 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 areas where it's like these parts are the saxophone parts. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, thanks and. Um, Hope, hope to hear you in person someday and, and talk again sometime. I hope so. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Great talking. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to the show. As promised, I've saved the real geeky saxophone stuff for the end of the show. So if you're a geeky saxophonist, stay tuned for a little bonus material um, 
at the end here. That's all the geeky saxophone stuff. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please tell your friends. We're trying to grow the show, and that's a big goal of mine to get these stories out there so that more people can be inspired and and hear these musicians. Check out the website, theplayfulmusician.com. And uh, please come back in a couple of weeks. We've got a great lineup coming up for the fall and winter. Super excited to share more of these stories with you. Okay, everybody, thanks so much, and we'll see you again soon. Uh, James, what if Dr. Hollick, like, what, what do you feel passed on to you in terms of what you do with your students now? Is there any one thing that really stuck with you that you still utilize today with your studio? studio? Um, yeah, I, it wouldn't be accurate to say I really have a studio, but I do have, but, <laughs> well, I, have but maybe I'll get so one, we... but maybe I'll get one. Maybe, maybe, you know, some people will be listening and they'll decide. But, uh, well, I mean, I guess to say that how I arrived at studying with Holig was quite unusual. I started mm. in 10th grade as an oboist at the School of the Arts, so I got into the school um, on a different instrument than the one that I actually ended up playing. So, that, you know, because right. it's kind of a conservatory environment, it's a little bit weird to to make a switch like that. And partly, uh, partly I think I showed some, like, potential during that one year, and then mm. partly I think Holig just took a risk on me. <laughs> he was just kind of like, all right, this guy's kind of crazy enough to try to make a switch and let's give him a shot. I don't know. You know, Holig was, he's an interesting guy. Yeah. But, but I was sort of a beginner. So I guess that all this to say that unlike a lot of the other people, that basically all of the other saxophone players, I was kind of starting with Holig as more or less a beginner at saxophone, not a beginner at, at music. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I remember like the first lesson I had just to sort of, just for him to sort of check me out. I, he was kind of showing me like where the bis fingering was and stuff like mm-hmm. that. I mean, it was, I was pretty, I was pretty naive. Yeah. Um, but that meant that, uh, I could kind of get started, uh, you know, with really good guidance. So, uh, the main things that I think about, I guess, are, uh, some of these are things I got from him quite directly, and some of these things I think I I sort of made up, but but they came from you know I don't know it's sort of confusing yeah, yeah. you know yeah, they're yeah. sort of like related to what he was telling me, and maybe I just figured out that this was the easiest way for me to get to it. But so I do a lot of things with the overtones series, uh, mm-hmm. and that was a big thing for for me. I I couldn't play altissimo at first, and uh, you know so there was it's an interesting thing with saxophones. A lot of the students there like they didn't even really play the overtones, but they could play the altissimo because it just would pop out for them or whatever. Yeah. And I couldn't, um, like at first it was just really hard for me to figure that out. And so I kind of devised these like overtone, long tone exercises that have to do with not using the tongue and starting really quiet and doing these radical crescendos and decrescendos. So you're starting just with air. Yeah. You don't use your tongue and you just try and it's it, a lot of it is awareness and intention but but basically that you're trying to have a very clear beginning of the note uh mm. but with no tongue and with the overtones so basically 
but without having any kind of accents or attacks or it's just like sort of this intentional note beginning that's really precise uh and I discovered that that was quite difficult and and tended yeah. to and, and it's something that i that I still that I've basically worked on ever since, and that I teach my students i you know it's I guide them towards it i I, I think one of the things with Holg was all about air and support and and one of the things I was trying to figure out how to do and have still thought about quite a lot is how to liberate the tongue from the from the from the note beginning such that you're not always uh using the tongue as kind of a crutch. You know, the, to force the air into the beginning. But if the mm. if the air is very, if you, I think a lot about note beginnings. But if the air is really clear at the beginning, and really intentional, and you can play these overtones without having the tongue, then the tongue starts to have another dimension. Like your articulation options start to to grow because it's not just like oh the tongue is just this default thing. And I think for saxophone, especially jazz, you know, it's just kind of everything about the tongue is mostly not thought about it's just kind of yeah. like it's just you just transcribe the stuff and the tongue you know it's whatever but the tongue is just not not we don't work on articulation the way that brass players do yeah in jazz especially and mm-hmm. uh everything is just legato basically and uh I, I don't know i just found that there was some room in there for for me to to grow and think and but yeah but, the, yeah, but the, that that thing and then he had this finger wiggles thing which has to do with like efficiency of finger technique and i've definitely you know, gone overboard with making up my own, my own ways of navigating that. But it just as a little seed idea of just like isolating each finger and being very efficient with the motion, Mm -hmm. you know, looking at yourself in the mirror and not having too much extra motion. I mean, that, that was, I got deep into that. Um, And now I have all this stuff I do that sort of fuses that with a more intention around rhythm, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. it's interesting. This is, this is getting very saxophone nerdy. I know, are there so many saxophones gonna, players are going to listen to this, or everyone else is no, going to be like, totally zoned out? We're going to geek out for just a little bit on saxophone, then we're going to get to other stuff because I'm a saxophone <laughs> player, and yeah, exactly. This stuff really interests me. So you're going to edit this all out for yeah, maybe, maybe this will <laughs> just be for <laughs> me. But um, <laughs> so the tongue—it's really interesting what you're saying about the tongue because I find teaching young it's really challenging to teach someone articulation and i have this sort of desire and i talk to middle school teachers and high school well mainly middle school teachers with beginning saxophones and i tell them the best thing you could do for the saxophones is have them not use their tongue for the first year (laughs) just play with air because Mm. nine times out of ten they teach themselves how to do something wrong and then to teach unteach especially the use of the tongue yeah it took me a year to un this kid was anchor tonguing it took me like a year to get him to figure out how to not do that and right it's so heavy right just this, yeah like, archery like yeah. thwack thwack yeah. sounds like arrows yeah. hitting a target <laughs> yeah I, I, yeah it's interesting you know it's it's not uh yeah it's you can you can bully the air with the tongue. You can aggressively <laughs> force it in there, you know, like and it can start to be just like how you play yeah. percussively, but I, I feel like it's a Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a it's a real it's a sort of very, very common problem. So, yeah. yeah. The overtone the no tongue overtone thing with clear note beginnings is actually quite I mean, because yeah, it's I love a, that. it's it is quite it's one of those things, it's like a these are my favorite kinds of technical exercises which are that they <laughs> There, you never can do them. 
<laughs> they're never not achievable. They're unachievable. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you really sort of understand, if they're very simple and very yeah. and almost impossible to do, like, but but pay dividends. You know, like oh, the yeah, pursuit huge. pursuit of that uh, uh, pays tremendous amount of dividends. Because you could talk. You know, that's the thing with overtones. And I, I got I that's I was trying to find something practical because I like I said I couldn't do it. And you know, mm. you get all this like, well, no, it's the vowel sound is more like you. It's like French. It's like you know, I told you do your tongue is this way. And it's all this discussion. But I, I, for me, if it's like okay, this is the thing that you're gonna do, and then your body finds the, all of that somehow yeah. you know it's yeah. like if you if you're kind of focused on a, a kind of just a clear objective that's not like oh i don't know how to think about all these things they're telling me to do uh you actually start to just figure that part out more intuitively or at least that that's how it worked for me you know and like i said i was i was kind of slow at first but then mm-hmm. then it was you know once i figured it out it was i could do it yeah well and i can tell in your tone like when i listen to your sound it, to me, it's it's quite evident you've you've done work on overtones and then you developed that whole cab that throat and all the voicing stuff because it's there's a richness I find there's a richness to people that do that work yeah to their sound and you you have that obviously there's a there's gear there's equipment and read and all that but I still feel like like you listen to Charlie Parker he always sounds like Charlie Parker no matter what. That's right what instrument he grabbed you know and half the time he didn't have an instrument because he hawked it for yeah all for substances so yeah you i can tell i feel like i can tell when i listen to your yeah. your tone i'm like oh man that's well holy did that it. to me too i mean he he uh <laughs> there was a time when he was trying to explain to you know trying to help me figure this out and, and i you know i was like i don't know about my horn and my read you know i was in there like oh, it doesn't really and he was like oh really let me see it and he just took it, just as it was, <laughs> just exactly how I had it. He didn't do anything. He didn't change his read, mouthpiece, nothing. He went boop, boop, boop. He played all of them. He gave it back. He said, "Oh, it works fine." And I remember that. <laughs> and I, I've done that to people, uh, yeah, because that sometimes has the biggest impression. You know, it it's, yeah. it is a little bit like when you when you go far enough into that that kind of overtone place. It doesn't. It really doesn't. I mean, you can be frustrated and unable to yeah. do all kinds of things, but you can play the. You can, I can play the overtones on everybody's horn. Right. You know, yeah, different yeah. different types of horns. So, yeah, it's like it's it's like a. It might not be so great, but it, I can do it. And it, I right. think it's that was. I needed to see someone do that to to. Yeah. To, under, to understand, you know. Yeah. So. Dr. Wyko did something similar with just air. I would say, well, like my horn won't do these things. Like I can't do this, and he's like just play a long tone and he stood behind me he said put your hands out to your sides and just hold a long tone i'll hold the saxophone for you mm-hmm. and he said play a low b flat and i played and he like played i don't know he started fingering like the glazenoff or something and mm-hmm. it was like amazing i was like what just happened mm-hmm. it was kind of crazy but that, oh, that was illuminating to me like oh wow it really is the air like it's 90 percent yeah air. Yeah, it's uh, really it's so true. It's so true. Yeah. And I think I think I mean not to belabor this, but but yeah. I think partly the saxophone, the barrier to entry, is a little bit too low. Yeah. In the sense that like you, these brass instruments, start. yeah, these brass instruments are just unforgiving. They're just like yeah. they're just punishingly physical. And if you don't do these things every day that are rigorous and kind of athletic, then you can't do it. So, that, but the saxophone is kind of like ah, you know, 
like Holig used to say, if, if you get a soft enough reed and you hang it out the car window going 60 miles an hour, it'll just play by itself. <laughs> you know, it, it's kind of like, yeah. as far as, it's, it's just about the entry point, right? So yeah. it's not about, to, to, to aspire to some kind of mastery is just sort of the same no matter what you're doing. But, but the entry is low enough that it, you can get lost in the kind of like, oh, this thing's just doing this stuff, you know? And after a while, mm-hmm. you're kind of curating it. You're not actually in charge of it. It's just too... Yeah, easy for it to to do things, you know, and, and I feel like that that's also something that's like it's kind of hard to explain to students, which is just like you know, playing fast is great, but it's not. It's, there's really never going to be anything exceptional about because it's so easy to do that, right? Like yeah. that, that, like you really want to figure out how to play with intention and play like you know, the, the, and then if you play fast, it's just a matter of choice. You don't want to feel like this thing is just kind of playing you, you know. And yeah. I feel like that that's often. Um, you know why a lot of saxophone playing sounds similar or something like that it's just because it's just like so easy to get it to do these things but not not easy to do it at a with a kind of mastery you know one more geeky saxophone question okay. um, sure. that i'm really curious about because i was reading an interview and you were talking about rhythmic practice yes and that really intrigued me because it's something that i struggle with with improvisation is like getting more interesting rhythmic ideas like practicing more interesting rhythm things and you were talking about how as saxophone single note single line players we don't unlike a, a drummer or a pianist you know we don't have those other limbs involved we just have that one line and you you have a way you were describing a way in which you practice rhythm, and I'd love to hear more about that. Right. I mean, there's some ways, some some different ways, but just following the thread that you just were speaking about, uh, yeah. the main thing that I tried to figure out was how to how to uh, to have two and three part rhythmic exercises that were that you were responsible for, so that you would actually have a kind of polyrhythmic. Uh, so you weren't just doing one at a time; you were doing one or two or three at a time. So mm-hmm. uh, that that ended up being quite helpful. And mostly, what I focused on in that regard is is uh, is triplets. Mm-hmm. So um, a lot of times, I feel like when people are struggling uh, rhythmically, they are have this is this is a generalization, but it's quite common. They're they're having a hard time feeling triplets well. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe they come from a different kind of, you know, maybe they haven't, maybe they're mostly play a certain kind of music or whatever, but basically like really, really feeling syncopated triplets is tricky for them. So, you know, the, the first thing I have these little st- stages, but the first thing I do is just have them get used to two against three. So mm-hmm. that I have them like, and, and I have them have their, so their feet is doing two and their hands are doing three. Right. So, you know, so it's, you know, it's, I can't do it here on the, yeah, the, yeah. on the thing very well. <laughs> But yeah, so you're like clapping three and you're stomping two and you're just trying to get comfortable with that. Then I have them sort of speak it. So they're going, you know, they're going one, two, three, one, two, three, one, yeah. two, one, two, one, Back and two, forth. three. But they're doing it while they're clapping and stomping. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I have, uh, it's kind of, I mean, it's it, it evolved, but there's like 10 basic three-part triplet exercises. Uh, so that so that I, I got their hands doing this and the feet are going boom 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 
boom, right? So this is mm-hmm. like the pulse is in the feet. Yeah. Dot, dot, go, go, boom, 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 boom. And you go, boom, um, 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 um. So you're, you're like just playing, basically singing or playing. By the way, you can do this with C sharp, right? You can, you yeah. can hang the instrument on your neck, you can clap, and oh, you can cool. still play, right? So you yeah. can still play. So you still have force to actually play, but you're placing now the the note itself within the context of a clapping and foot stomping thing oh, cool. and if you do on the first triplet and then a second triplet third triplet and now you're now it's not just like you're not just out in the wilderness with like where <laughs> am i really placing this note because you're placing it in context of these other things that you're also doing so it becomes kind yeah. of like a dance uh and it becomes very physical very in your body a lot of times i think the thing with rhythm is that the people are like thinking about it so i thought about rhythm and i was just thinking about whether <laughs> right. i was rushing or you know i had this very high conceptual ideas about it. it's like no no you just have to it has to be experienced physically and it has to be something that just be it's trained you know that you train mm-hmm. train it as a physical thing yeah uh and it has to be trained in that way like very repetitively it's not like oh i just did it once for like a couple <laughs> bars it's like no no you got to get in there for like minutes and minutes it, you know it had, you have to get into like almost a trance already to place with this where it's just rep- repetitive yeah and uh and that's really helpful and i and it's, what's interesting is then if you translate these things to playing because you were talking about playing more and more interesting rhythms yeah, yeah. I, I get people playing less and less interesting rhythms because basically they're not in charge of rhythm. They're just the rhythm is just kind of flowing in all, and they okay. don't know what it's happening. And it, what happens is when we learn the, the language of jazz, the rhythm is sort of part of part of that, these phrases and things. And that's when we're playing, uh, when we start playing the song, we're playing this this language. You know, some people describe it as licks. I try to avoid that. But, but basically, mm-hmm. like, you have this kind of like this l- linguistic stuff you've learned and you play it and you know that it goes in this particular spot. Uh, but it, but it, it's so it, you're kind of regurgitating in a certain kind of way. It's, mm-hmm. You're not actually uh, so you're not actually improvising with rhythm. You're just kind of improvising with these things that you've kind of learned. And I find that that uh, I get people to to have their limit. They're they're playing a song, but their their rhythmic choices are very limited. Like you're only going to play these particular rhythms over the whole song. So now your voice leading has to be really good, otherwise it doesn't sound like the song. But suddenly you're you're really just thinking about the voice leading and these rhythms. Mm-hmm. And you need to learn a tremendous amount of vocabulary for this to make sense also. But you, you're constantly learning tr- this vocabulary. But now you're just doing rhythm and voice leading. And you start to have the feeling of like, I'm actually improvising where the rhythm is front and center. Yeah. And the pitch is following. Which mm-hmm. is something that people say to do, but it's really hard to know how to get there. But like, when the rhythm is... In ch- like in front, when the rhythm is leading and the pitches are secondary things, you have a lot more capacity to improvise for long periods of time without feeling like you're repeating yourself or, or uh, you know, because you're just not so it's not just vocabulary oriented. It's yeah, actually yeah. it's actually something that you're sort of improvising rhythmically as you would if you were speaking or, or something like that. So uh, very cool. I found it it helps to sort of. Uh, well, it helps because most of the time saxophone players' rhythm is not good. Uh, like, t- to be honest, so just to yeah. force force us to have better rhythm is really is really great. It yeah. helps because now you have an awareness of how you integrate into the rhythmic context of the other people you're playing with much easier. Um, but then also you may have the capacity to start to not be trapped in this kind of vocabulary stuff that you've learned and to to improvise a little bit differently. Mm. Um, 
So I don't know. It, it it's it's quite it's been quite helpful for me and for my students if I can get them to do it. It's it's, it's yeah. helpful. I love that. So um, thanks for that. Thanks for all that. Sure. I really appreciate. That. Yeah. Sure. Pleasure. 